Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast, the first Politically Speaking of 2015. Woo! Woo! I should have brought some horns. We should have. (laughs) We'll edit that in later. Uh, I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio... Jason Rosenbaum. And... Joe Manis. And our special guest this week is... Is us! <laughs> just us. Is, uh, is the Invisible Man. Well, Welcome, yeah. Invisible Man. Yeah, us talking a little bit about what happened in 2014 and what's going to happen in 2015. Yeah, we're going to get into a little bit of some changing of the guard in the St. Louis County, um, a little bit into the fallout from Ferguson. But first, we're going to start off with the state legislature because... It's uh, coming back this week. Joe, you have a story going up this morning that's looking at what's going to happen this year. But I believe what you're saying is that there's not much sense of a clear-cut agenda going into the 2015 session. Correct. For all the talk about Ferguson, for all the talk about maybe doing stuff for business, all the talk about um, doing something with the school transfer issue – when you really look at um, what's what has really been proposed so far, everything's kind of general. For example, um, my colleague Marshall Griffin also had talked to uh, Senator David Pierce, and he has uh, something on the radio side today mm-hmm. about it. But Pierce says his first bill is about the transfer issue. But the provision that he's got mainly about the transfer issue is to set up a task force to look at it. And uh, so yeah. there's nothing that says, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this. And in fact, in that bill, there are some provisions that while it does have a provision that would allow uh, tra- students to transfer to private schools if they're from an unaccredited district, it sets the bar so high for what the private school would have to do, what, what standards they have to meet, that Pierce, who's a former member of the Warrensburg Public School Board, says that very few schools will qualify. He just made it clear, though, that he had to put it in there in order to try to get it through. I thought that was a rather very honest statement, but this is the kind of thing that we're, we're seeing here. We we had Speaker Deal on the Politically Speaking podcast a few weeks ago. People can uh, scroll it up. It was a really good interview, but he was talking about he wanted to do pro-business stuff, maybe – Another type of tax cut, it probably wouldn't be on the scale of what they approved last session. And I'm hearing talk that even that may not happen because you've got a lot of Republican legislators who are looking to what's going on in Kansas where they really slashed income taxes several years ago. And it's really hitting the economic skids now. And so there's some who say, well, there's a view that uh, maybe we should wait until these tax cuts that they approved go into effect in 2017. No one wants to say anything on the record about it, but that's uh, some of the talk. You've got the whole thing about ethics, that they've got all these ethics bills. But I've got a number of people who are saying that probably not much will happen. Although, although one of our one of my favorite guests in the podcast, former Speaker Steve Tilly, who's now a lobbyist, Tilly told me that he thinks he is somewhat optimistic that something will happen on the ethics front. Now, what's interesting about Tilly is that that he was Speaker when the last major ethics bill was passed. It's just that it got tossed out by the courts on technical grounds and was never resurrected. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of stuff that um, is in the story, but it also sets the stage for a legislative session that doesn't appear to be real focused yet. 
Yeah. And, and even the governor isn't saying that much. And he's going to be having a state of the state address in a couple of weeks. And maybe then we'll get a, more of an agenda from him. But it's it's much it's very unusual for it to be this quiet right before they go into session. I think one of the reasons why it might be that way is we're kind of entering a period of Missouri politics that's a very much a limbo period between now and arguably one of the most impactful and important election cycles of the last 20 or 30 years, which is 2016. And you're in a situation where you have a governor, Governor Jane Nixon. Who's term limited. Who's term limited is now facing a legislature that is so overwhelmingly Republican that, you know, the House can override his vetoes pretty much on not all issues, but a lot of issues without too much trouble. I mean, he's at pretty much the lowest of the low point of his power with the legislature. And because of that and because of the legislature and the governor have not really had a cohesive working agenda in quite a long time, there's just there just doesn't seem to be, you know, a lot of cohesiveness or common ground there when we're at a time in our state's history where th- there's a lot of issues that have come up after the Ferguson unrest where legislative action probably is warranted. It's just a question of whether there's the the cooperation the there will, to do it. The will. I think there's a number of bills related to Ferguson that have been inter- introduced, but by all accounts, the only one that really will likely have a significant amount of momentum is State Senator Eric Schmidt's bill. He also had talked about it. Yes. At uh, length on the podcast. Yeah, on the length on a podcast. From last year. Yes, uh, a few weeks ago. And Schmidt, who's a Republican from Glendale and also running for state treasurer in 2016, his bill would limit how much municipalities can collect as a percentage of their overall revenue from their court, overall court fees. Right, from their overall budget and court fees and fines. And if they exceed that, right now it's 30 percent. He's proposed to drop that to 10 most people believe that if there is a change, it'll be closer to 20. And that's kind of part of the, the issue here. When I was right. talking with somebody from the Arch City Defenders, he kind of saw the writing on the wall with this issue that you start with something like a 10 percent and it kind of goes to a different percentage. And, you know, just in his view, incremental changes to municipal courts gets done and not really much changes then. If that's the only issue you find consensus on and a lot of the other things that are more controversial, whether it's being are dealt with police uh, or dealt with the structure of St. Louis County, whether it, it deals with grand jury structure, those are much more controversial ideas. If, 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 if the municipal courts aspect kind of gets winnowed down, then you really have to question whether much gets done in that respect. Yeah, because I don't think most of the other proposals, frankly, from what I've been hearing, are going to go anywhere, uh, either for uh, constitutional reasons or what, how much power the legislature really has and uh, regarding like how many municipalities are in St. Louis County, that sort of thing. But they're also, when you look at um, the, the courts bill, for example, it would affect rural communities as well as ones in St. Louis County. And some of these rural communities also rely on speeding tickets and things to help cover their costs. So there's some rural legislators who are looking at this. So I think I think that's the one that may get discussion from what everybody tells me, but it's unclear if anything else is going to go anywhere. But in, in, in some ways, what you just mentioned, Jason, kind of brings up this whole thing. 
we're on the verge of a changing of the guard in in the state capitol with a new governor for sure, whoever it'll be. Uh, a number of other major office holders uh, probably will change. Um, in the legislature, most of the leaders, the leaders in the legislature now, new speaker John Deal, he he'll be out by 2016. You've got um, Senate Pro Tem Tom Dempsey, he'll be out by 2016. You're going to have a lot of change going on in the next couple of years. So many of these people are looking at what their legacy is going to be, or if they're going to run for other office, or what they're going to do. And I think that's affecting some of this. I I, I really do. But it is kind of a odd feeling of. Um, they said it's it, it's so eerily quiet right yeah. now going into the session. So that's on the legislative front. Do we have any idea or any even sense of what the governor is going to be speaking about in his state of the state? Probably Ferguson. I know, but what's he going to call for? I don't know if he's going to call. I doubt. I predict it won't be as much Ferguson as you think. His state of the state usually deals with budget priorities, and he details yeah. his budget proposal that he submits to the General Assembly, which they then rip apart. Um I think he's going to focus a lot on that. I think he's going to resurrect another appeal for Medicaid expansion, even though he knows it may not go anywhere. He'll probably make some comments about Ferguson and maybe make some general things. But unless he – maybe he'll endorse Schmidt's proposal. But I just – I mean, he's already set up a commission. I don't see him proposing a major initiative. He may make some talk, but I don't know if he's going to propose any action. Am I wrong? Um I don't know. It's hard to predict the future, but as somebody who used to cover uh, State of the States with some regularity, my impression from them is while I think it's an important thing for the governor to kind of clearly state his priorities, it often doesn't really manifest itself at the end of the road in actually definitive action. Right. That was that was correct. I mean, that was true when Matt Blunt was governor and he had a Republican legislature. What he talked about at the State of the State was was probably some of those things got done but at, when when may hit we were we were talking about other things and i think that could happen with jay nixon's yeah. you know 6th or 7th state of the state even though i think there may be more focus on it this time around because he's become kind of a pseudo national figure in good and bad ways oh yeah in fact there was a national talk show just the other day that cited him as one of the biggest losers out of the whole Ferguson thing, saying he was off the list. This was a bunch of East Coast yeah. journalists talking about it. Yeah. So speaking of changing of the guard, it's exactly. not just in Jeff oh, City. What a segue. <laughs> that is a segue. That's a pretty good one. Yes. Several days ago in St. Louis County, uh, there was the, the first new St. Louis County executive since 2003. Actually, the eighth county executive in the county's history, Steve Stanger of Afton. I think he's the youngest. He probably is. And How old is he? 43. 43. I did okay. something on the ages of these eight guys, and he's by far the youngest. Yeah, 43. Um, he's. I guess he's not the first county council person to become county executive. In fact, Dooley was a county council person. Uh, Milford was a county council person before when he was elevated. Um, but it's a big deal. You know, I think we're used to in Missouri politics of a new executive coming in and then this intractable legislature is there kind of stopping them at every turn. That's definitely the case with state politics. It's it's the case in national politics, too, to be honest. But not in – But in St. Louis County, it's completely Clayton. different. Um, the county executive's office is not an office that is inhibited by a lot of limitations like the St. Louis mayor's office is to some extent. 
And in some instances, you know, he, the county executive's office doesn't have wide latitude over everything. He doesn't have a lot of latitude within municipalities, but it's an extremely powerful post. And it's, an, it's a powerful post where you can get a lot done when you have a friendly county council. And Steve Stanger is now in a situation where he has free reign to appoint people to the various departments, which he's doing now, and crafting a budget, which he'll do sometime near the end of next year. And he's also going to be able to appoint a lot of important appointees to regional boards. And he's in this this really, really nice position for himself where he has a pretty specific philosophy and agenda of where he wants to bring the, the, the county policy-wise on economic development and uh, transportation issues. And he generally has a pretty friendly county council that, that agrees with him on a lot of this. Even uh, Republican Councilman Mark Harder of Baldwin who probably takes the mantle of the most conservative council person now that Greg Quinn is, is is gone, he agrees with Stanger on auditing the county. Apparently, they both ran on the same thing. So you have that situation where you have a you have it is an unusual situation where somebody with the wherewithal and the legislative pathway is coming into office. But the wrinkle to this situation is that you know Stanger won by a very narrow margin. And he still, I think, has elements of the the black political community that still is distrustful of him, probably because they were close to County Executive Dooley and they may not have liked his alliance with with prosecutor um, Bob McCullough. But, you know, I got to tell you, I've been following Steve Stinger now for three and a half years. I've interviewed him multiple times. I've I've never sensed any hint of racial animus with by talking with them. And more importantly, he has pretty directly said that he wants to make building up North St. Louis County a pretty big priority of his administration. And it should also be noted that he did have some support of pretty influential black leaders during the general election, like Lacey Clay and Betty Thompson um, and, you know, Leslie Broadnax, the person that ran against McCullough. So I think that in some ways, there is a perception and a reality, and I think that the the reality is he wants to do something to build up some of the poorest communities in St. Louis County, which happen to also be the most African-American part. But again, the reality is going to be when if he can actually deliver on that, and that may be a more challenging enterprise. And meanwhile, McCullough was uh, sworn in for yet another term. He's been in office since 91. Yes. And his, his speech was a little bit more thanking his family as opposed to saying anything policy-wise. He did kind of mention near the end that, you know, old wounds had been opened. and Referring you know, to the Ferguson. And uh, he wants to work to try to repair those. I have to say, again, Bob McCullough was obviously a very controversial figure over the last few months. But in this this, this inauguration ceremony, he got a very warm reception um, a lot of people pointed out that this it's was a, an invite only. It was an invite only, and it was high security. They yeah. moved it out of the council chambers and had it and, in the court. And a lot of people pointed out that it was lar- a largely white audience. Although there were African Americans there, I was there, but it was it was primarily white. I think that's an accurate way of pointing it out. But I mean, McCullough is not in the same situation as Stanger. I mean, he didn't even have a general election opponent before this cycle. 
I don't think I think he had gone several cycles without even a primary opponent. Yes, yes, he has. Like politically, he's never really been in the precarious situation that Stanger was before the general election. Now, whether he decides to run again in 2018 or has real live opposition then kind of remains to be seen. But, I mean, before this Ferguson situation, there were Democratic politicians that were clamoring to have him, his endorsement, and be in their ads. I mean, look at Chris Coster in 2008. Bob McCullough did ads for him during the primary, and it was a big deal for him. And Bob McCullough played a crucial role in Claire McCaskill's challenge of then-Governor Bob Holden in 2004. It was Bob McCullough's public endorsement of McCaskill that put her on—it gave her momentum, and then she was able to knock out a sitting governor in the primary. Bob McCullough started that ball rolling. Yeah, and I'm—again, it's kind of— Whether one likes him or not. I mean, I'm just saying this is the clout that he has had. And, you know— Whatever happens with him kind of remains to be seen, too. But, I mean, his what what kind of how he handled the Ferguson and Darren Wilson situation will certainly be a part of his, his broader legacy whenever he decides to, to step down. Early. And Chris has some news on that front. Yes. Uh, some news that we broke this morning, actually. Um, one of the grand jurors in the Darren Wilson case um, is taking issue with how McCullough has characterized the grand jury um, and has said essentially that McCullough misled the public and mischaracterized uh, their view. Um, so this grand juror is suing Bob McCullough for the right to speak out on this case. Because right normally, now grand jurors cannot. Yes. Norm, under normal circumstances, grand jurors are prohibited from speaking out about their, about their experience. And also under normal circumstances, the evidence is also sealed, which was not the case Correct. in this. Uh, McCullough released redacted uh, transcripts of all of the testimony from witnesses and from experts. And he also released a lot of uh, the autopsy reports and other things that were redacted. So this person, uh, we don't know if it's male or a female in the lawsuit, it's Granger Doe. But uh, this person says that, I'm going to read a quote here actually from the lawsuit. Um, In this grand juror's view, quote, the current information available about the grand juror's views is not entirely accurate, especially the implication that all grand jurors believe that there was no support for any charges. Moreover, the public characterization of the grand juror's view of witnesses and evidence does not accord with the plaintiff's own. So in this lawsuit, they're arguing that under normal circumstances, this would be uh, against the law to speak out about this. But that this is a unique circumstance, partially because McCullough released the evidence on his own. So, yeah, M- McCullough is another one. Although he hasn't gotten as much uh, attention as the governor, he also has taken a few hits nationally, just because some um, of the national press were talking about why he waited until eight o'clock that night. Um, I had an interview with him a couple weeks ago, which you can look up on our site where he talks about why he did it that way, whether one agrees or disagrees. But uh, but the point is that he has received some national attention, uh, although not on the scale of what yeah. Governor Nixon And he was also criticized with. for allowing people to testify before the grand jury who were lying. Um, and he says that it was clear to the grand jury, although it's very important to note here that none of the members of the prosecution were in the room when the grand jury was deliberating. Well, they, 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 well, they weren't there when they gave 
Because he talked about that. And in yeah. fact, I've in my story, uh, one of the things he talked about was because I asked him about that was that a he, neither he nor anyone he was not in the room when they were right. testifying. He's saying that he says so. I don't know for sure whether they were lying yeah. or not. He said it's just based on the facts after I saw what they had testified, based on the facts as he believed them to be on other evidence, he suspected they were. But he yeah. said there isn't clear enough evidence to charge anybody, and so no one's going to be charged with lying yeah. to the grand jury. Yeah. In, in in a separate interview, he said that it was it was absolutely clear that people were lying and that – after the fact. Though. Yes. Well, and he said it was clear to the grand jurors as well. But that's difficult to say considering he would not have been present for correct well, for that, any of the deliberations. And well, no and he wasn't there than, for the testimony. He's only right. he, all, all he, he was two, doing was reading this stuff later. Right. Because I believe that two of his staff attorneys were right. leading Assistant that investigation. So there's that. But yeah. yeah. So. This is the case. It's uh, being headed by the ACLU of Missouri, uh, and it's been filed in federal court. This is really unorthodox. I have not heard of something like this happening before, so it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, it'd be interesting whether or not that this case, this lawsuit, prompts um, any discussion about there has been a bill in filed in the General Assembly that right. would do away with grand right. juries. Which, I don't know if that's going to no, go anywhere because no. it's probably unconstitutional, but but it might at least generate some discussion. Yeah, I think I think that definitely would. But Bob McCullough, among any, many Republicans, like Bob Bob McCullough. Most of the polling that was done before the election, private polling, showed that if anything, his standing among Republicans was stronger than among Democrats. So the chances of the General Assembly. Going after Bob McCullough, I think, are slim. Yeah. The other thing, as you mentioned in kind of your duly retrospective, is if he had decided to run for county executive in 2004, we probably would be talking about county executive McCullough right, right now. Right. Still now. Yes. Still now. But apparently he's never been interested in that job, which is kind of an interesting the, thing in and of itself. The pressure on him to run in 2004, I was there and actually talked to him then and covered that, was very heavy. Very heavy because there was a number of Democrats who felt, turned out wrongly, that while they even liked Dooley, they just didn't think Dooley would be able to win in a general election in 2004. Now, it turned out he was. And that was just for a two-year term to fulfill what was left of Buzz Westfall's term. Then Dooley went ahead and ran in 2006. Now, by that time, people realized that McCullough wasn't going to challenge him. McCullough says he had no problem with him. And the Republicans actually put up former county executive uh, Gene McNary against him, and um, Dooley still won. And uh, so then, of course, in 2010, it was a tight race with Dooley against um, lawyer Bill Corrigan. But the point being is that uh, Democrats and some Republicans had been pressing McCullough for a long time to run for county executive. He didn't do it, and he says he has no plans to. But his standing among Republicans in particular remains high, and they're the ones in control in the state capitol outside of the governor's mansion. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with with him. Um, though I, I don't know. It, again, it's hard to predict the future. I mean, maybe he'll run again in 2018. Maybe he he'll decide that what by that point would it be 28 years as mm -hmm. yeah. How old is he? 
He, he's in his mid sixties. So yeah. you know, that's he's a, not that old. He's he's mid sixties. I, I guess for St. Louis County government, that's par for the course because people seem to run for offices for, in, in perpetuity there. But again, who knows? Yeah, I, it's I I don't really want to predict what we're going to be talking about in 2018 when we have 2016 to go through. Yeah, because so. Buzz Westfall was the county prosecutor for a long time before he finally decided to run for county executive. Yeah. All right. I'm going to close this out here. Uh, I should add, if you were listening to this on Monday before noon, you can tune into St. Louis on the Air and hear Joe and I believe Marshall on a show um, previewing the Missouri legislature. Right, Joe? Yes. You will be on there? Okay. Uh, so that is Monday at noon. Um, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe, you can be followed on Twitter as well. At Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.